Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B podcast. I'm Alex from X-Growth. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out about their successes, fails, and what's working for them in the market. If you enjoy the episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share the pod with a friend. And of course, make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack to connect with our members. That's enough from me. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hoda with X-Growth. And today I'm talking to Bowden Westover, Chief Marketing Officer at Vivi, about how Australian foreign companies should approach building a marketing team in the United States to support their expansion plans. So if you are a company that is thinking of expanding and getting into the U.S. market, you should definitely tune in and listen to the full episode. On that note, Bowden, thanks a lot for jumping in. Of course. No, thank you for having me. I've been on the, the show a couple of times now and um, I love the content, love the Slack channel. So yeah, really excited to be here again. You know, when, when we've had you here, it's been on different kind of roles where previously you were at Catapult and you had multiple different roles at Catapult. You spent a lot of time there and now you're your CMO at, at Vivi. So, and, and, and what I think is you bring to the table, especially with regards to this topic that we're talking about is you both have that experience at Catapult where you were, I think, the first person who went to the U.S. And I want to really dive into that a little bit more and talk about it. But also you're having the same experience now with Vivi. So give us a little bit of an overview. First of all, give us a give us kind of like a high level about your experience when it comes to expanding into the U.S. market. Yeah, um, so I guess I'll start with my current role. So I'm at Vivi, which is an edtech uh, SaaS business based here in Melbourne. I joined about nine months ago. We had about 30 people at the time when I joined and only two people in the US. So nine months later, we're at about 60. So we've doubled in size and we've got 25 in the US. So from two to 25 in nine months. So um, it's very much, very, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much the, a, a huge focus of the company is to to figure out the US and be successful over there. We feel like we've sort of, done that in in australia the the company started in late 2016 we've got really good market penetration especially in private schools here now we're looking to replicate over that i guess the more interesting part of my career as it uh, relates to the the topic of this conversation though is my, my time at catapult so i joined there in 2012 employee number 10 or so and, and i ended up being there for eight and a half years and like you mentioned, we're again, a small Australian tech startup. But in that case, I was one of the first US employees, quote unquote. My boss basically said, your role is going to be in the US from now on. Are you happy to do that? And during my interview process, I mentioned my dad was American. So he sort of just assumed I had a US passport. I didn't, but it was, it was easy to get a visa and, and move over there. So yeah, we didn't have a US office or anything. He basically just said, pick a location that makes sense, go, go get set up and we'll figure out how to grow the team. I chose San Francisco at the time because had family in the area. My dad's from the Bay Area, a lot of tech media, obviously, West Coast. So the time difference was, was pretty good with Melbourne. So like found an apartment, all the rest of it, ended up really staying for a little while because we had a, a person based in Dallas that we'd recently recruited and uh, we're hitting our really busy period. And again, my boss was like, would you mind going to Dallas for a little while and, and helping this guy out? <laughs> after renting the house, after signing right. the lease, huh? <laughs> 
Exactly right. Yeah. So got down to Dallas, rented a car, drove down to Dallas, like middle of summer. It was a really good experience because I sort of saw another side of the business. It was our first full-time US employee that I was sort of working alongside. And then again, thought I'd be there in Dallas for a while, like <laughs> found another apartment. And then we hired a, a president for the North American region who was based in Chicago. So rented another car, drove up to Chicago, ended up being in Chicago for about three and a half years. Where grew the, we grew the team in Chicago to about 35 people. So went from us two to 35 in about a year. And sort of at the end of that year, we acquired a big US business that was based in Boston that had about 90 people. So like before we knew it, it went from just being me over there to 120 staff in the US, which obviously brought a lot of pains and, and, and sort of cultural differences and all the rest of it, which I'll, I'll sort of dive into. But yeah, that's sort of a high level look at my sort of experience dealing with the US so far. Yeah, I want to I want to definitely dive in some of the things that you talked about there. Uh, and for for those who don't have an idea who Catapult is, Catapult is is one of those definitely startups, Australian startups that are extremely successful where we don't hear a lot about because they're kind of under the radar. They're B2B. They're not like a Canva that it's really in your face and, and it's a kind of consumer brand. And that's what I mean by that. So uh, Catapult, amazing company, amazing growth and have some amazing investors like Mark Cuban and, and some of the other uh, other ones. So definitely we're not uh, we're not talking uh, the uh, we're talking the, uh, the the heavyweights here. So let's let's dive in, Bowden. Let's talk about the first thing that I want to kind of cover is in your experiences where you were working on the expansion of the company or the companies, both of them, Catapult or Vivi, into the U.S. market. What were some of the things you didn't see coming? Uh, yeah, good question. I'll I'll sort of continue with that thread that I mentioned sort of in terms of cultural differences because I think that was a pretty big one at Catapult. It hasn't been so much at Vivi, but um, I guess the internal divide that sort of organically creates between the Australian and US teams, it's a difficult thing to avoid. So each team sort of inherently going to have its own culture. But I've seen both at Catapult and, and other companies that I've sort of been involved in at the advisory level that are, again, trying to grow into the US it's you can quickly see rifts form between the two so surprisingly we haven't seen that at vivi yet and i think that i was thinking about it and the, the two biggest reasons why i think that's the case one we don't have a us office so everyone over there is remote and it's sort of a level playing field because a, a pretty big chunk of our team here in melbourne are working remotely people in the us are working remotely so you kind of forget where people even live like Besides the time difference and the fact that you're speaking to them at 7 a.m., like they, they might as well be in the same city because you, you're sort of just sharing a Zoom link rather than a physical space. So I think that's been a good sort of equalizer. And the other one, Vivi made it very clear to the entire team early on that the U.S. growth is critical to the company's success. So I think everyone rallied behind that early on, whereas you do see some companies that tried to protect that sort of Australianness of the company. And I think we were guilty of that a little bit at Catapults. We were sort of born out of the Australian Institute of Sport and we sort of had that rich heritage around Australian sports science. And so once we started employing people in the US and we created a team over there and there was an office and the, the, the whole US culture there's a bit of a rift that formed between the two and it's inevitable. I think every company is going to face it, but sort of how you manage it is, a, is an imp important one and something that I didn't see company see coming. Another thing from sort of like an external perspective, and I'm going to talk in a lot of generalizations, like I, I'm not like a, it's an old... Let's, let's talk about based on your experience, right? Like let's yeah. not... 
we all know that every company is unique so we're not going to exactly, pretend yeah. like you know one thing you know it's a it's a one one size fit all but uh yeah let's let's generalize based on your experience that i think that's completely fine yeah, that no, sounds good. So a few generalizations. I, I found that industries grow and consolidate faster in the US. A lot of the time, your direct competition isn't always who you need to be the most worried about because a lot of companies, they'll cover more segments and pillars. So companies that you thought might have been adjacent or even complementary uh, quickly become your competition over there. So I think just things just move a little bit faster, which makes positioning extremely important in the US, probably even more so than here. So you really need to pinpoint where you sit in the market, what your USPs are, make them memorable, repeatable. Otherwise, there's just so much competition over there, you really get lost in the noise. Whereas here, I think you you can sort of stake your claim in something and the, sort of the market sort of works around you. Whereas over there, it's just very, very competitive. So you need to be constantly aware of um, who's doing what. Got it. Got it. You talked about teams, right? And, and the fact that there was a bit of a rift at Catapult or that was kind of in the early days, that's what happened. Do you think it's possible to grow a U.S. presence without having U.S. team members and doing it all from, for example, Australia? I don't think so, no. <laughs> I don't think it's scalable to have an entire U.S. operation uh, managed from Australia. I think you can certainly do it up to a point. And to go back to the, the Catapult example, I mean, we signed up the New York Knicks, the San Antonio Spurs, like some probably five, uh, maybe three NFL teams before we had any people on the ground over there. Granted, we had to physically fly people over to the U.S. And I remember our CTO at the time, one of the co-founders of the business, he went to the U.S. like 15 times one year in like 2013. And every time over there, he's like demoing the product. He's like setting up the, the local positioning system and having conversations with, with um, prospective clients. So we had a very impressive customer list before we ever had someone on the ground over there. But it was a huge investment because we still had to physically send people over there. So the short answer is I think you could do it in the short run and you could sort of start to build a little bit of momentum from Australia, especially if you set up your sales and marketing engine in the right way in a sort of a repeatable automated way. But at the end of the day, you, you do need boots on the ground, even if it is temporarily sending people over there. How did all of this experience prepared you for a second expansion to US? So what I mean by that is, you went through Catapult, right? And there were certain things that you learned. And now you're doing that at, at Vivi from a, being, being the CMO of the company. You're doing it at Vivi. How did all of this kind of prepared you for the second time of doing it? Yeah, so I think Catapult was an interesting experience because I'm a big believer that sort of depending on the industry, geographic origin is an important part of a brand's sort of essence and positioning. So like think of a watch brand from Switzerland, chocolate from Belgium, like a project management app from Silicon Valley, like that sort of thing. So one thing that I think that really helped fuel early US growth for Catapult is that, like I said before, Australian sports science is really respected around the world. And a big part of the reason for that being the case, the Australian Institute of Sport was actually where Catapult was born out of. So a big part of the USP of the company was scientific validation. The fact we're entering a US market, it was about 10 years behind Australia and the UK. There's really an unearned degree of trust there for the product. We, we, it, we sort of came in there with trust already built, which is, I think, unusual for, for brands, especially overseas brands. 
So we capitalized on that early. We moved a few Australians over there, um, myself included. And to this day, some of the some of Catapult's best salespeople and customer success people over there, there have been Australians that they've really used their voice of authority over there. So, and they weren't even salespeople; they were sports scientists that sold the product because they they educated first and foremost. They they didn't go in there selling a product. They went in sort of explaining what Australians do in a similar situation. So, Vivi, that's been very different. So we've had to be a little bit more adaptable in our, I guess, our go-to-market strategy over there because we don't have that same level of inherent validation. So our approach has been different in that we're accelerating local representation, and that's been um, ex- extremely important for us. As in having people on the ground, like going back to what I was saying earlier about Catapult, we could sort of get away with flying people over there, closing a big deal, they fly back, and then we, we sort of build some PR around a, a customer that we sign because obviously sports are a pretty sexy industry. So if you go over there and sell to the New York Knicks and then you're in the New York Times a week later, then you're starting to get some inbound interest from other schools and then you fly someone over there and it sort of accelerates. But it's uh, education that hasn't been the case. It's not as sexy an industry and um, they don't really look to Australia in the same way. Because like it, within the NFL, which is obviously an enormous multi-billion dollar league, just the TV rights alone, they still look to the AFL from a sports science perspective. But I haven't come across a US school district that really cares what an individual Australian school is doing. So knowing that we don't have that built-in leverage, we're accelerating building the team on the ground over there a lot faster and really giving us that American voice. So I think just recognizing the differences there it's sort of, I guess, prepared me for the second time around where we couldn't sort of just rely on the fact that we had this inherent uh, value already built into the, the physical location of the brand's origin. Talking about that and talking about, you, you mentioned competitors, right? How a complementary player in that market all of a sudden could turn into a competitor and things move a lot faster. What have you seen or, or how does your go-to-market plan differ between Australia and the US? Yeah, I don't think the process of taking a product to market in the US is hugely different to Australia, but doing so over there from here presents some interesting challenges. So obviously the country is so enormous and diverse and segmented, can't even really say what's your go-to market for the US. It's really like, what's your go-to market for the, the East Coast? What is it for the Southeast? Education, I would even say it's as detailed as like, you have to be as specific as go-to market for Florida. What is it for Nevada? What is it for New York? Because some of these school districts are so big, they're like 50,000 student districts. And it doesn't really matter what you've done in a neighboring state or even a neighboring county, like they only care about what they're doing. So because the country's so vast, you're probably better off starting off with one segment than one region and then leveraging competition to create clusters of customers which I think we did well at Catapult. We're also doing effectively at at Vivi. So once you have one innovator or early adopter on your books, the next move should be to look at what's their competitive and geographic equivalents. So for us in K-12 schools, if we've got a school district in Indiana, that significantly increases our chances of signing another K-12 school in Indiana because no one wants to be left behind and sort of creating competition amongst your customers and prospects. And that's that sense of competition is obviously even stronger in sport because once you have two or three NBA teams, it's, you can get to 10 teams pretty quickly because no one wants to be left behind. They want to be using this brand new shiny thing. It's difficult to get over half the league and it's almost impossible to get the whole league unless you have a, a league-wide deal. But leveraging competition on the com- customer side is a really quick way to grow over there. And it's not something that I found to be as effective in Australia. 
especially in the on the education side, like if we sign Brighton Grammar as a customer who who do use Vivi, that isn't going to really help bring on another public, really? private or Catholic school. There's just not that sort of sense of they're doing this thing, so we should be doing that too. Whereas in the US, it's like you can create a fire around a, a geographic region just by sort of marketing to, to that sort of geofenced area. That's fascinating. I would have thought that that would have been also the case in Australia in the educational sector, but that's that's fascinating. Well, why do you think that's uh, that's not as big of a thing in the educational space in Australia? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like g- going back to my sort of generalizations, I, I do think the the industry, both industries, are more competitive in the U.S. I'm sure we'll talk about sort of the differences between B2B and B2C later on in the discussion, but. I think sort of the the value and the sort of the interesting side of B2B is you're selling to someone that is spending someone else's money, essentially. Like they're, they're, they're spending their, their mm. company's money, not their own. And there's sort of like a inherent sort of emotional touch point that you need to, to crack into when, when you're selling to someone that's spending someone else's money. So that you being able to leverage what others around you are doing is really important. And the, the more competitive the market it is, the more likely people are going to go with in terms of what they, their own competition are using. In Australia, that hasn't been the case. I'm not 100% sure why. We do see it more in the independent school market, so like private schools can, mm. compared to like public schools. Like if one public school is using Vivi, a public school a kilometre away, like that it provides no value having that sort of geographic location, which is really interesting. A little bit more on the, the independent side, maybe because there's a little bit more money involved. But yeah, I'd have to have a, a deeper think about it, why that, that's the case in Australia compared to the US. Got it. Got it. And we, you touched on this a little bit that uh, in cur- case of Catapult, it actually really helped with regards to the fact that Catapult was an Australian company and had that all that validation behind it. With Vivi, less so. Overall, how do you find the attitude of the US market towards Australian firms? One, I think the Australian accent really helps open doors in America. So I think it does. Regardless okay. of, yeah, so I think regardless of the industry, uh, US companies, like they prefer to have a local presence there and we need people on the ground and ideally you have a US headquarters just to make it feel like an official thing, I guess, but yeah, on initial legit. outreach. Yeah, legit. So, but the fact that you're Australian is a, is really a great icebreaker. Uh, I mean, whether you're traveling over there on holiday or you're doing business, like a, it, speaking with an accent definitely helps. I think a lot of people consider Americans insular and depending on where you are in the country, that can often be the case. But generally speaking, when it comes to business, I've found that regardless of where they are in America, they, they like to, they like, the, I guess, the novelty of, of dealing with someone that's from another country. But yeah, so after living over there a few times, spending the majority of my career so far helping Australian businesses grow over there, I do think Americans are probably more competitive in business than Australians. So therefore approaching an American business as an Australian is sort of seen as a competitive advantage because you're perceived to be unknown and therefore sort of this untapped resource that their competition might not necessarily have been aware of yet. But having said that, so to have success over there, you need to be the best at what you do. And Australians are probably more willing to back an underdog, whereas Americans are more likely to back a winner. So being Australian, it is might get you in the door, but you, you do need to be the the leader of the segment that you're creating in order to, to create some momentum. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. What about hiring? So let's let's talk about let's change gear and talk about hiring. What were your first hires from a marketing perspective in the US US uh, market? We can talk about catapult and I, I want to talk about Vivi if you change anything. 
Yep. Yeah, I'll cover both because I've had a very different approach to both. <laughs> um, okay, so let's Catapult, do this. Yeah, so I was I, I, at Catapult, I was very young and stupid when I started there. So I was the only marketing person uh, for a long time and I took too much pride in that to the point where I did everything myself for way too long just for the praise of having achieved something myself. So if I could go through that period of extraordinary growth again, which to some extent I am at Vivi now, but I definitely avoid trying to hang on to being the one-man band for, for so long. To answer the question, though, our first marketing hire in the US at Catapult was actually my wife. So she quit her job in the fashion industry here in Australia, obviously moved over to the US with me, ended up coming into the office to help out with some stuff because she was waiting for a working visa. We were living down a small downtown apartment. It was the middle of winter in Chicago, so there wasn't much for her to do. And so she sort of just came in to help. And then eventually over the course of a couple of months, it turned into a full-time job. So I don't recommend being your spouse's boss, but we did make it work there for, for a little while. <laughs> we ended up having our first child in Chicago, moving over, uh, moving back to Australia. And she's obviously not working with me anymore. <laughs> the next US marketing person actually came through an acquisition. And it wasn't until I'd moved back to Australia that we really started to grow the team over there because... For reference, even when we had around 200 staff at Catapult, it was still only me in marketing. And then once we made that big US acquisition, at the same time, we're starting to ramp towards a consumer launch. The team went from just me to 18 people really quickly. And most of those roles were in the UK and the US. So we had a couple here in Melbourne, uh, but the vast majority of the team was over there. So Vivi's been very different. So my first hire was here in Melbourne. That's That was a designer, creative director. Uh, but my next three um, since then have been in the US. So I've got a, a US marketing manager that's got really strong industry experience because I came over from sports tech. Sports tech and ed tech are quite different. Didn't feel like I had my finger on the pulse for US education and haven't been able to travel. So I wanted someone that really knew the industry inside out. And then I've got someone that owns events globally, most of which are in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Um, and it's a huge chunk of our, our marketing budget and education. And then um, I've got a communications lead that, again, a global role, but based in the US uh, starting in the next couple of weeks. So all three are very much T-shaped marketers that so are really strong in one area, but they're, they're wearing multiple hats. And even though our headquarters are here and we're very much an Australian company, I don't think I'll hire another person in my marketing team here in Australia. They're, they're all going to be in the US or the UK because at the end of the day, that's where the market is. And if you work in marketing at an Australian tech company, you have to you have to do everything with a global lens because the market is just so small here compared to the, the US and Europe and Asia that you, you're, you're not going to last too long or you, your growth is going to be stunted if you do everything through an Australian lens. And hiring is obviously a huge part of that. So yeah, all future hiring uh, will be, be in the Northern Hemisphere. Your marketing manager that you hired in the US, the um, you, you said... T-shaped mark. Everyone's a T-shaped marketer, and I get that he or she has experience with the educational sector. But what's their strong point? Like, what is the? So you have an event person, which is, as you said, the big part of of what what you guys do. You have a common person. What about the marketing manager? Obviously, I understand they got to understand all the different aspects. But from a marketing perspective, what are, what are what are his or her strengths? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I should have clarified that. So she's um, very strong on ABM, so account-based marketing within the education sector. So the, again, the one thing I really like about B2B is knowing exactly who your audience is, which you, you don't really have in on the B2C side. So the fact that we can create really targeted marketing campaigns for our audience, especially in the US, 
for these huge districts that um, are worth millions of dollars, creating content directly for someone and, and taking a really ABM approach to, uh, is, a, is a really um, a strong part of our marketing strategy. So she leads that for us in the US and that, that's sort of her, her thing, <laughs> but she's um, basically an extension of our sales team over there. And the, our events person only started two weeks ago. So before that, she was handling our US events as well. Got it. Got it. Okay. Bowden, before I have some rapid fire questions I want to ask you, but before I jump into those, is there anything that you reckon it's important about the the US expansion plans and, and how, you got, how you've done it or what you think people need to be aware of that maybe I haven't asked or we haven't, haven't touched on? Good question. So I think like senior leadership over there is really important. And even at the board level, I've read a few articles about Australian companies trying to expand over there. And a lot of them recommend that having a board seat based in the US early on is an important thing. We, Vivi, we do have that now and it came through a pretty significant investment. So we just raised 20 million USD right before Christmas. And that brought um, an American onto our board, which is really exciting. I don't think it's 100% necessary to, to give up a board seat to just for the sake of it to, to for US growth. But I do think it is important to have really senior a really senior American voice as part of the leadership team. One thing I probably underestimated at the time in the early days of Catapult um, was, and you mentioned it, was the impact of bringing Mark Cuban on as an investor. Because from a marketing perspective, I mean, it was great. It was like shooting fish in a barrel from a, speaking with the reporters, we're in every publication for a while. Uh, but it really provided a, a validation for us at the perfect time. Because when I go back to that, I think that was like 20... 14 i want to say we just had the head coach of the college football team that won the national championship team national championship came out and said that catapult helped them reduce injuries by 88 percent and then one of the biggest names in america the intersection of sport business technology backs the company in a pretty public way so all of a sudden the nba the nfl at the league level they're willing to have conversations with us all credit for that by the way goes to catapult's executive chairman dear shipman he's sort of the master mind behind everything at catapult but i really underestimated the sort of power of that and strategic investment in the us goes a long way because it just opens so many doors like you could have the best sales team in the world like bdms that are just animals and they open up doors constantly but having that really really senior strategic investment is worth its weight in gold over there Wow, I love it. I love it. All all the pieces falling into the right uh, right place. That that is uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I was just going to say timing and luck are very important. The fact that those things happened around the same time was yeah, that really helped with the the growth of the company and not something that we controlled. <laughs> I love it. All right, let's do some rapid fire questions. The first thing I want to ask you is, what is one resource, book, blog, podcast, talk, whatever it is that comes to mind, that has really made made an impact on you as as a person, either professionally or or uh, personally. Okay, so I'm a big reader. Like I read a lot of books, <laughs> um, so I probably get through about. Well, I do get through about 150 books per year. So I'm increasingly sort of resistant wow. to having that one book that changed my life. But I think. Well, tell me, tell me about something that you've recently read that you like. This is really good stuff. I was just going to say, because there's one sort of multi-channel content resource that I'd strongly recommend. That's called The Knowledge Project. I'm not sure if you heard that that one. I have not, no. So they've got a weekly newsletter. There's a podcast. They've released three books so far. The podcast interviews, are they're, they sort of always open up my mind to a new concept. Like they sort of cover leadership. They cover 
marketing, they cover growth. It's, it's a bit of everything, mindfulness. So they go for over an hour. They go really deep on one topic. I listen to them at double speed when I ride my bike to the office. Uh, but the books, just to answer your question, the three books that they've released around mental models, I would recommend them. those. They're, they're, they're quite good. Got it. Got it. So do you, do you, um, do you usually listen audiobook? Are you reading? I mean, 150 books a year. That is impressive. Do you uh, like, I, a, yeah. How do you, how do you go through them? I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't listen to any audio books. I, I do physically read the actual book. So I usually have three on go at any time. So I'm always reading a physical book. I read a book on my computer and then I read a book on my phone. So if like I'm in bed, I'm reading on my phone. I get up really early, so I get up and work and then I'll read a bit on my computer. And then if I'm commuting or if I'm like sitting outside or with my kids or whatever, I'll, it's a physical book. And to, I'm probably coming across a bit weird, but I usually am reading like a novel, a business book and a nonfiction book that's sort of a non-business topic. So that, that's sort of the breakdown of the, the books I'm reading at any, any given time. I love that. No, look, you're not weird at all. I have some weird habits as well uh, when it comes to reading books, like uh, buying both the audio, Audible and the physical book and then smashing oh, yeah. through it. Uh, but uh, I got I got a bunch of these uh, weird ticks when it comes to books. I like it. But uh, I, I love that. That's, that's, that's awesome. Let me ask you the second question. If you could give one advice to kind of B2B marketers, especially those who are thinking about you know, maybe the board or the leadership has decided that the US is an important market for them. And if you could give them one advice, what would that be? So going back to what I was saying earlier a little bit, and hopefully this is still a rap rapid response <laughs> to your question to keep with the theme, but it might not be. So it's easy to assume I think B2B is less emotional sell because you're convincing someone to spend someone else's money, but it might be less impulsive than B2C, but it's still filled with emotion. So you're selling to someone constantly trying to prove themselves, their peers, their they want something that makes their job slightly easier, but not to the point that it could replace them. They probably don't want to be sold, but they're also stepping out on a ledge for you and your company. So there's an enormous amount of trust required there. And the, be the best sales and marketing I've seen is constantly aware of that need to build trust from the very top of the funnel. So to be very specific about that one piece of advice for B2B marketers especially, it's to create content that builds trust. So I, th I think content is everything um, from a marketing perspective. It fuels everything you do. But so many companies just talk about themselves and content is only effective if you're talking about what your audience cares about. Mm -hmm. and, and I really believe that no one ever made a B2B purchasing decision without trust involved. And it's really marketing's job to, to build that trust from the start. And the best way to do that is through content. Whether you're expanding in the US, whether you expand in Australia or Japan or wherever it is, Doesn't it's matter, trust yeah. that you need to focus on. Third question, who are some of the influencers in the sales and marketing space that come to mind that you know, you referred to quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so I read everything Seth Godin writes. So I read all his yep. books. He's got a, a daily newsletter. So if you subscribe to that, he's just one of those really wise people that you read something and you sort of have to take a few minutes to think about it because it, it's, it's so deep. Some of the others that probably aren't necessarily sales or marketing, but can, their sort of work can be applied to both Adam Grant, psychologist. I think Think Again, was that the name of his last book? All yeah, of his it's books the last, are really good. The, that's the last book. Yeah, follow him on Twitter. Everything he writes is gold. Austin Cleon, who's actually just sort of a, a creative based in Austin. His name's Austin. He's written a, a series of books that sort of help creatives be more creative, which I've found a lot of value in. Naval Ravikant, uh, hopefully I'm saying his name right. All his work is really good. Then I've, I get a, a newsletter from a guy and his email is called Harry from Marketing Examples. 
I don't know who he is. He's based in the UK. Um, I think he's brilliant. He just really simplifies copywriting in particular. So he'll, he'll share examples of really good copywriting and compare it with bad copywriting. And every time you see it, it's just like, that's so simple, but so brilliant. So yeah, I, I hang on every word that he says. I love it. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty complete list. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. That's, uh, that's great. Last one. Last question that I have is, what's something that excites you about B2B today? B2B today. So I think more B2B companies are thinking more in terms of B2B to C, which is exciting for me. So one thing that I prefer about B2B, and I mentioned earlier um, over B2C, is that in consumer marketing, you spend so much time trying to understand who your audience is, like what they care about, how they consume content, what jobs they're trying to get done. And it's sort of a distraction from the work itself. Whereas in B2B, you generally know who you're selling to, when you're selling to them. And there's that really sort of cyclical top-down approach to the user experience in a, that's in a nice, predictable way. So uh, with companies becoming more ambitious, I think, in marketing to businesses and its consumers simultaneously, I like the fact that it's creating this sort of interesting top-down and bottom-up tandem that makes traditional B2B more exciting. So we really saw it at Catapult. We were selling to teams, which is team isn't a thing. You're selling to the coach, the performance manager, the sports scientist, the GM of the team. But you're also selling to the athletes. So this sort of top-down, bottom-up approach. And we're seeing it at Vivi as well in education. So the, our customer is IT leadership in schools, but we're also going after our market through teachers and students as well. So B2B, that side of B2B really excites me because it sort of combines the best part of B2C with the best part of B2B, which as long as I'll be working in marketing, I, I want it to be with companies that are sort of through that B2B2C lens. I really like that. Bowden, there is a reason that we have you on the podcast for the third time. <laughs> I always learn so much and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to take away a lot of things as well. I really appreciate it. And uh, and thanks again for uh, for coming on the uh, on the pod. Of course. No, thank you for having me. Hopefully I'll be back in six, nine months, whatever it is, and talk about something Looking else. Looking forward to it. Looking forward awesome. to it. Appreciate it. This episode of Gross Connie was produced by Alexander Hipwell. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing and music also by Alexander Hipwell. Special thanks to Tina Wabe and Rod Hoda. We couldn't make the show without you. The show is hosted by Shaheen Hoda. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or share a pod with a friend. If you'd like to connect with the members of Growth Colony, join our free Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks again for all the support and looking forward to seeing you in the next one. This podcast is brought to you by Xgrowth, an account-based marketing agency with a strong specialization in the APAC market. If you're starting to roll out an account-based marketing initiative in your firm or looking to take your current program to the next level, whether it's one-to-one, one-to-few, or one-to-many, don't try to do it all alone. Chat with the ABM experts at Xgrowth to see how they can help you both on strategy and execution of your next ABM campaign. To find out more, head to www.xgrowth.com.au. That's www.xgrowth.com.au.